We want to welcome you again to another Bible study with Pastor Darrell. So today we are going to slowly make our way through some of the very basic steps of salvation. So of course if you have your Bible, please open it to Romans chapter number 3. If you're wondering what the title is, we can shorten this to four words. I, I'm lost, now what? But if we had a longer one, I'd put it in the form of a question. If I was a sinner, what would I need to know and hear in order to be saved? Now that's a question that people probably think about from time to time, especially if they have to witness to people. If you're talking to a sinner, what do I say? What steps do I take? What approach should I use? And I hope we can address some of that here and now. So in Romans chapter 3, I'd like to read verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So let's have a quick word of prayer, and then we'll deal with that statement. I'm lost. Now what? Father, in the name of Jesus, for the next few moments, as we begin to teach this lesson, we're asking that you would minister to those that are listening and watching. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen, amen. Okay, now notice the statement or the question that I began with. If I was a sinner, what would I need to hear? What would I want to hear? See the difference. What would I need to hear? That's different than what would I want to hear. I know that if I'm living in sin, I know what I want to hear. A sinner wants to hear this. Jesus died on the cross for you, and it doesn't matter how you live, what you do, your salvation is secure. You will immediately go to heaven, regardless of how you live or whatever you believe. That's why Jesus died. That is what people want to hear over and over again. No modification, no alterations to their lives. Just simply go on doing what they want to do, and everything is okay. However, if we address it from Romans, then we quickly understand that the scripture teaches all of us are in sin. Now, I want to emphasize very early that there's no escaping the fact that we all are sinners. We were born in the world that way. That's just the way God has put this all together. Now, there was a great preacher many years ago, pastored a great church called Gospel Lighthouse in Dallas, Texas, a pastor named J.C. Hibbert. He's gone on to be with the Lord. But he used to make a statement when you're witnessing to a sinner. So you have to get that man or woman lost before you can get them saved. That means they must know that they are in a condition of sinfulness so that they can appreciate the whole idea of needing salvation. The man or woman who's under the impression that I'm as good as anybody else and I don't need a savior because I'm, I don't have anything from which I need to be saved, that person will not find Christ's mode of redemption desirable in any way at all. But Paul, he tells us that everybody has sinned, and that's important. The scripture begins in Romans chapter 1 and in chapter 2 by explaining 
all of us are guilty before God. The Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people. Anybody on this earth that's not Jewish is a Gentile. They're guilty before God. Then Paul says all Jewish people who keep the law, they also are guilty of sin before God. In Romans 3 verse 9, he goes even further. He says, what then? Are we better than they? He said, no, not at all. We have proved in the preceding statements that both Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. It doesn't matter if you don't believe that you're a sinner. You are. You don't have to believe in hell to go there. You just need to know there is a place that's called hell and there is a way to escape damnation to that place. So we begin with the idea that the person who doesn't know God, the one who is an unbeliever, is a sinner. And knowing that that person is a sinner, I'm trying to reach them. I'm trying to explain to them their condition. All of us were born in sin, shaped in iniquity, as David said. It's impossible to come into this world apart from that stain of original sin. And it's because of, of Adam that we all come into the world that way. Now, somebody says it's not right that because of what Adam did, we should be found guilty before God. Look, I can't do anything about uh, how you feel about that. I'm just telling you this is what the book teaches. And this is what God has said. And it, and it reminds me of the, the little story where the kid was in elementary school and his teacher was trying to work on a math problem with him. So his teacher said to, to, to the little boy, we'll just call him Johnny. He, he said to Johnny, he said, now look, Johnny, if, if you have 10 sheep and says one sheep jumps over the fence, how many sheep do you still have in the pen? And Johnny said zero. And the teacher said, no, I don't think you understood. You, you misunderstood what I said. We're, we're working on math. If, if you have 10 sheep and they're all in a sheepfold, and then one jumps the fence. So 10 minus one. How many sheep do you have left, Johnny? And Johnny said, zero. And she said, how in the world do you come up with zero if I keep telling you 10 minus one? You don't come up with zero. Johnny said, well, you say I misunderstand the math problem. Teacher, I'm saying you misunderstand sheep. You don't understand their nature. If one jumps the fence, they all jump the fence. And none that are left. So way back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, Adam jumped the fence, and we all jumped with him. The Bible says, by one man's sin, many were made unrighteous. But because of one man, Christ, many are made righteous. So to go from unrighteousness to a state of righteousness, you have to choose who you are going to jump the fence with. And so if I'm a sinner then, if I want to enjoy a status that is approved in God's presence, I've got to follow the head lamb. I've got to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's think about the second aspect of this. If I have convinced a man or woman now that by nature they're in sin, that they are a sinner, that they are separated from God, that there is a gulf, an impassable gulf between this person and God, then there has to be a way to bridge that gulf. And that's where we hear the story of Jesus Christ. Christ came into this world to die on our cross, die on the cross, and by doing so, he made it possible for every man and woman, boy and girl, who believes in his shed blood, when that blood ran into the ground, it made it possible for people to be changed. So the next aspect of this 
is repentance. Oh, pastor, what is repentance? It's a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's a change of lifestyle. We need to go into this a little bit deeper. And I want to read a verse to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want you to see what Paul says regarding this issue of repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 10. Godly sorrow creates or worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Paul has told us in this chapter that he had written to them in a previous letter. He said that other letter had to deal with some harsh things. You had some sin going on in the church, and I had to deal with that, and I had to expose it and tell you that it was wrong. And I realized that some of what I said probably caused you to mourn and to grieve. He said, I know I broke your heart, and in many ways you, you were sorrowful. But he said it was a very good kind of sorrow. And he said, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm very happy that it was the kind of sorrow that is according to God, or godly sorrow. What, what does this mean? Some people only feel bad about their misdeed after they are caught. You ever seen that happen to some people? As long as it's in secret, as long as it's done in the dark and nobody knows anything about it, it doesn't bother them. They are pleased with their activity. But the moment the wife walks in on them, the moment the little kid gets his hand caught in the cookie jar and he's got crumbs all around his mouth and mama says, I thought I told you not to eat the cookies and we're exposed. At that point, we then say, well, okay, I've been caught and so this isn't a good thing. But you, you've got to understand that getting caught is not necessarily the same as repenting. Getting caught, you could just be merely you know, sorrowful and shame, feeling shame because of the fact somebody has found out what you were doing secretly. But repentance is I realize what I've done is wrong and I don't want to do it again. You feel that way down on the inside. At the same time, there's some people that may experience conviction and condemnation while they're doing something that's wrong. And then when they finally are caught, they feel a sense of relief. Because now it's like, oh, the pressure is off. I'm tired of doing this behind closed doors and my wife or my mom or my child or my neighbor or somebody hadn't known, but now they know. So I feel a sense of relief. Well, that's still not repentance. Because the relief now is just over the fact that you didn't like to carry the burden of the secrecy. Repentance is a change of mind and heart because I know I have grieved God. I've broken his commandments. And this is what Paul is working on here. He said, godly sorrow, it brings us to a point of repentance to salvation. Now that I know I have displeased God, then I want to be sorrowful enough to know that God will save me out of it. Remember this, this, this little formula right here. God will never convict you of anything that he doesn't give you the power to walk away from. If God puts his finger on anything in your life and says it's wrong, and you're convicted of anything that God says is a sin, with that same conviction comes the power to be delivered from it. 
God's not going to tease you or play with your emotions. So if you know that you shouldn't be dabbling in this or dabbling in that or saying this or saying that, the moment you experience that, God gives you the ability now to govern your tongue. You can walk away from it. Because to every man, temptation comes. But with every temptation, there's a way of escape. It is God that goes out of the way to ensure that godly sorrow is available to the believer. And once you repent and turn from your iniquity, it's a 180 degree different change. And you, you then begin to modify your lifestyle in the, the manner in which you live. And so that you don't create or recreate the same conditions that brought about the problem in the first place. We're talking about repentance. In a practical way, let's say, God forbid, that I stepped out on my wife and I had an affair. Now, I, I know my wife, Tiffany. She'd kill me anyhow. So it wouldn't even be a problem after that. However, if I stepped out on my wife and had an affair and then decided, okay, I'm going to repent. But then in my repentance, I divorced my wife and take up with the one that I had an affair with, could you really call that repentance? But there are a lot of people in the world that do. That's not genuine repentance at all. Repentance is to acknowledge this is my sin, this is my iniquity, and to turn from that iniquity in order to move over into the righteousness of God. So as a Christian there, if I'm a sinner and God is calling on me to repent of my sins, I realize now I have to turn my back on what I was. I've got to totally change my lifestyle so that I can be pleasing to God now. And this is where Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches to uh, a lot of people and 3,000 people get saved. And according to the scripture, he told them, repent and be baptized. 3,000 people heard the message and they turned. Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from iniquity? So first, if, if, if I were a sinner... And, 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 I, and I was in sin, I would want to know how to, what do I need to do to be saved? You, you have to convince me first I'm a sinner. Then after you've done that, then you've got to let me know I need to repent. I need to repent. I've got to turn from what I am in order to become what God wants me to be. And then the third thing, according to Romans chapter 10, then I need to believe with my heart. So Romans 10 makes it very plain there in verse number 10, let me read this for you. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now you can say anything that you want, but what comes out of your mouth is going to be what's in this heart. You can only hide that for so long. If, if you believe that you possess goodness on your own, then you won't feel the need to believe in the righteousness that God provides. Self-perceived goodness or self-perceived righteousness, what does it look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. This, this is what it looks like. Somebody says, well, well, well look, uh, Pastor Darrell, I'm as good as you. Well, if you're as good as me, you're nowhere because there's none good but God. To say you're as good as me or as holy as somebody else in the church or to say you're more righteous than somebody in your family is to say nothing at all because your self-perceived goodness and righteousness is based upon your own personal and private standards. But if you were to say to me, I don't steal, I don't lie, 
I don't bother anybody. I try to help people if they if they're having a problem. I, I'm just you know I'm a, I think I'm a good guy. I think I'm a good gal. But if I were to ask you, okay, well, what is goodness? Then you may not have an answer. And if I said, okay, you say you don't tell a lie, well, who is it that determines what is a lie and what is true? Once you come to the conclusion that you are your own ready-made standard, then quite naturally you're going to pass every self-imposed test that you can think of. There are people in jail right now saying, I didn't do it. And there are people sitting in prisons all over the place incarcerated, and you ask them, what did you do to get in here? I didn't do anything. And you can talk to a man or woman about, about their divorce, and you say, well, well what, what brought about the divorce? It wasn't my fault. And over and over again, you'll find that everybody has a form of self-imposed goodness, and this is why we come back to the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in Romans chapter 10, concerning Israel, my heart's desire for them is that they might be saved, because in their zeal they have established for them their own righteousness, but not according to the knowledge of God. So you may head up the committee for chicken frying in your church. You may be the one that cuts all the grass. You very well may be the one that look after all the kids. And you could be the one that's in charge of all the trustees. But none of those things gives you any new status with God. You can do that and not even be a Christian. I know people personally that sit on church boards and are not born again. They're not even interested in serving God. They're as foul-mouthed as anyone that you meet that, that, that lives outside of a church setting. So righteousness, then, is something that God establishes. He sent his son into this world to become a man, so that as a man, men and women could become children of God. In becoming children of God, we change our lifestyle. We change everything about who we are and what we do because of what we believe. What do we believe? We believe Jesus was born of a virgin. We believe he lived without sin. We believed he died on the cross in our place. We believed that his blood was shed for our iniquity, that he was taken down from that cross and literally buried. We believed he was raised on the, raised on the third day from the grave. And we also believe he ascended to the Father from where one day he's going to return. So having believed that and taken all of those facts seriously, looking at the life of Christ and all of the, the scheme of redemption, since we owe him so much and are debtors to him, we change how we live. And this is why we believe. So when a man or woman hears the gospel message, the Holy Ghost comes down in conviction. Once the conviction is there, God gives the ability to repent, the ability to turn, the ability to come out of iniquity. That individual hears and then believes. When they believe, they are changed, they are born again, according to the formula in Ephesians chapter 1. Having heard, I believed. Having believed, I was sealed with his spirit. Then all of a sudden, that frown goes upside down, and God gives you a big smile, and he puts it on your face. And now you're excited about the fact that you are a Christian. So when God saves a man or a woman, he saves them completely. Faith is a noun. We're going to speak of grammar. The word believe is a verb. But to exhibit either of them in your life, you are going to have to trust God and act. You don't put your faith in motion. Your faith is dead. If what you believe 
isn't positively manifested in your life as a Christian, then what you believe is in vain. Even Paul said if we deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it really happened, our faith is in vain. So let me give you this, this, this lovely story and tie it all together. Many, many years ago, there was a, a gentleman, I think he was born in England. His mother died when he was about two years of age. His father remarried, and he remarried a very godly woman who took a two-year-old boy and his little sister and essentially raised them as, as her own. And, and, and she loved him. She was involved with the Salvation Army and the holiness side of the Methodist Church. And just had a great relationship with the king. And she raised the kids that way. I mean, the little boy got older, fell in love with Jesus, knew that he was called to preach. He got to running with those folks with the Nazarene and the Wesleyans and those in the Salvation Army. He was involved with street preaching and all of these good things. Well, he heard that over in Los Angeles, this, this was about 1906 now, in 1907, he, he heard that in Los Angeles, God was pouring out his spirit and that people were being filled with the Holy Ghost, and wonderful things were taking place, and he was so excited about that, after having become a pastor in the, in the Methodist church, he, he, he said to a friend of his that invited him to go, said, I want to go with you. He said, well, here's the address, and we're going to have a cottage meeting, and all of these people are getting together, and we want you to come, we're going to pray and ask God to pour out his Holy Ghost upon you and do some wonderful things for you. So the next day, that pastor, uh, Brother Price, he was quite excited about being able to go to that meeting. Good Methodist preacher. And so he got dressed, he was walking down the street, and he happened to come across an elderly Methodist minister who had been uh, in the Christian way for a number of decades. And he said, well, well, young man, where are you going? He said, well, I heard about what's going on with with the Azusa outpouring, and people are being filled with the Holy Spirit, and great things are happening, and so they're having a cottage meeting right here in this little town, and I'm going over there, and I'm going to wait in the presence of God and see if God filled me with the Holy Ghost like he did in Acts chapter 2, and that elderly Methodist preacher grabbed him by the arm and said, look, now I encourage you, don't do that. If you want to wreck your future, don't go over there with those kind of people. You just stay with us. And he said, come back to my office. I'll give you some books to read. And so that, that pastor gave him some books to read, and those books started talking to him about psychology and explaining to him that, you know, emotionalism and any kind of fanaticism, people get involved with that, it's all explainable. You can explain it rationally. If somebody gets excited and they say they're shouting for God, it's really not any kind of shout for God. They're just kind of happy about something. And if you can take away that stimulant, then, then that joy will just disappear. And so this, this preacher who was on his way to a good Holy Ghost meeting to learn more and more about God, he found himself now having rationalized so many things that he lost his faith as a pastor in the Bible. He no longer believed it was the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. The pastors over him thought that he went too far into liberalism. And so he left Methodist Church, joined the congregational movement of that day and took a church down in California. And he, he, he became one of these guys who was, was a very good speaker, so he began to speak a lot on the stage. 
And he was attending the theater all the time with a lot of his friends. And he became quite popular. When something was going on in town, they wanted his input because they knew as a very liberal pastor that he had stature and he had influence. But one day, some people in his church, while he was up reading the scriptures and preaching, somebody in his church said out loud, Amen. And said it so startled him that he said to the person, we won't have that here in this church. And the next week he came back and he was reading the scripture and he preached again. Two or three people said, amen, pastor. And he said, I better figure out what in the world's going on with these people. And he had a talk with them afterwards. And come to find out those folks had gone over to a tent meeting where a lady named Amy Simple McPherson had been preaching. She's the founder of the Foursquare Church. This is way back in 1920. And he decided that he was going to go over there and attack her on the basis of two things. Number one, a woman ought not be preaching. Then number two, there's no way on this earth there are any kind of miracle signs and wonders or healings that are taking place. So Dr. Charles Price, he put an advertisement in the paper. And he said, on such and such day, I'm going to write an article and I'm going to puncture and burst this whole belief that Jesus is a healer, and that people can be genuinely born again in their heart. So he chose a day to go over there to that tent. He said when he got to the tent, he'd never seen that many people in his life, over 6,000 people under the tent and a host of people around the tent. And he said when he walked in from the back, started making his way down the aisle, he could all of a sudden hear people saying his name and whispering it. And, and he's trying to figure out what in the world they were talking about. He could hear people saying, there's Dr. Price, Dr. Price is here. And he said he, he, he was walking down the aisle and he even heard one person say, well, I hope he gets something while he's here. And he had a friend, a Baptist preacher, who was very upstanding and also a very eloquent, erudite man who he couldn't understand why he was under that tent, but he didn't realize that Baptist preacher had come in and generally got saved a few days ago and got filled with the Holy Spirit. And so... He, he said to Dr. Towner, he said, what are you doing here? Dr. Towner said, oh, I'm glad to see you. Let me bring you down here on the front. There's a nice place for you. And so I took him down to the front row and put him over in the section because everything was packed. He said there was one seat way off in the corner, and it was where all the people on the stretchers were and all the people that were in the wheelchairs were and all the cripples were over there. And Dr. Price said he had to go take a seat in the crippled section. And he said, looking back on his life now, he said that's exactly where he needed to be. Because inwardly and spiritually, he was all crippled and twisted up. He said that woman got up and preached. He said he hadn't heard a message like that in a long time. He couldn't wait to get out of there. He went home that night, tossed and turned, couldn't sleep. He said, I'm not going back, but he determined the next day he needed to go back. So he went back. He said, this time he ended up on the platform. That woman, Amy Simple McPherson, got up and preached the gospel, a very simple, pure message. At the end, gave an altar call for sinners. He said, if you are in sin and you want to give your heart to the Lord, stand on your feet right now. Here he was up on the platform with 20 or 30 other preachers. He jumped up, and one of the, one of the Presbyterian pastors put their hands on his shoulder and said, I don't think you understood what she said, Dr. Price. This is the call for salvation. He said, I know it. And he remained on his feet. Gave his heart to the Lord. God changed his life because of that meeting. And from 1922 to 
1947 when he died, he spent 25 years traveling across North America and around the world preaching some of the greatest salvation healing rallies that this nation has ever seen. His magazine, The Golden Grain, went into the, the libraries of thousands of preachers. But here was a man that had to repent of what he was and believe in what that book said. But he had to come to see he was a sinner, even though he was in the pulpit week after week. Folks, don't be deceived. Now is the time to embrace Christ. Today is the day of salvation. And when you're talking to your loved ones and your family members, reach out to them this way and share with them that they need to know God. God bless you. And we'll talk to you again real soon. Praise the Lord.